0: Today's scripture reading comes from Philippians 3 verses 1 through 11. You can find it in the blue Pew Bible on page 981. Please stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Philippians 3 one through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for dogs. Look out for the evil doers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh blameless but whatever gain i had i counted as loss for the sake of christ indeed i count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing christ jesus my lord for his sake i have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that i might gain and be found uh, might gain christ and be found in him You
1: may be seated. Morning, church. Thank you for praying for me. As some of you know, especially for those of you who are members, that I was actually battling COVID the last two weeks. Now, rest assured, I tested yesterday, and I tested negative, so I am not infectious. But I may need to take a few swigs of water today as I preach, because my throat is still not yet 100%, so you'll have to forgive me, okay? Let's go before the Lord in prayer before we hear the Word of God preached. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning and for the opportunity that we have to be able to worship you. We recognize that this is a privilege to be able to sing songs of worship to you and also to be able to sit under the preaching of your word. We recognize that whenever your word goes out, it does not return void, but it accomplishes that which you purpose, and we ask that it would do so today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So every year when fall season came around, especially when I was working, it began the annual performance review season. Now, not every employee received a review specifically in the fall, but they would be preparing for that review possibly in the winter as well. But one of the things that you needed to do was to write up your performance goals for the upcoming year. And so, to help people write up their goals for their performance review, they would use this tool. I'm sure many of you who have worked in the workplace know it, called Smart Goals. Now, for some of you, you may grow and you're like, oh, we're going to talk about Smart Goals in service. And for some of you, you may be excited because you love Smart Goals. And so, this acronym, SMART, actually stands for Specific, Measurable, Achievable, Relevant, and Time-Bound. Now, there may be a few words that are synonymous, but those are the things that you have to think about when you're writing up your goals. Now, this tool, SMART Goals, helped me to determine the deeds that I need to accomplish for my next performance review. So, for example, I would write down the task ensure that the turnaround time for my quality reports to be written to purge nonconforming parts from production in two to three days to ensure that it doesn't negatively impact production. Now, it was just a fancy of ways saying, I'm gonna get my projects done in two to three days so that the company's bottom line is not affected. Now, I'm sure that many of you have written similar types of goals. Reducing time that you chart patients, improving processes in oil refining, or designing a new curriculum that will improve learning amongst students. But there's a key to writing the goals. There's a key to writing these deeds. They must be attainable. And I remember my coach or my mentor at work saying to me, Henry, when you write your first goals, Make sure that you can achieve them, because that way, at the end of the year, you can write next to the goal, exceeded expectations. Or even better, significantly exceeded expectations. Because you never want to write a SMART goal that is so tough that at the end of the year, you have to write next to it, partially met expectation. Or even worse, did not meet expectations. You want to write smart goals that are achievable because your performance review ultimately depends upon it. Now, some of us may apply the smart goal philosophy to other aspects of our lives as well. Now, you may not write them down in a journal or write them down in a Word doc, but you may have goals and smart goals as well. For example, I will ensure that my newborn will have one hour of tummy time each day so they develop neck strength. I will exercise two to three times a week in a high-intensity workout to develop my physical endurance and strength. I will take family photos in October so that I can get my greeting cards out by December. Now, it'd be no surprise that we apply these smart goal philosophies to the things that we do, but also that we might even apply them to our spiritual lives as well. That we apply this smart goal principle to our spiritual lives to determine what we might do. What deeds can I do for God? Come January, I'm going to read through my Bible in a year so that I can have a greater awareness of the biblical story. I will make a commitment to pray twice a day, morning, evening. And the purpose is to draw closer to God. I'll commit one day of the week to rest. No emails, no texting, no projects. Just me, God, and something I enjoy where every day I'll be praying for three non-believers that I know that they will come to faith in Christ. <coughs> now, we may apply these smart goal principles to our spiritual lives to determine what we do to answer that question, what deeds can I do for God? And it's commendable to have these goals, to be able to do these things. But if we put too much of an emphasis on our deeds on the things that we do, there's a temptation. The temptation is this, that we are tempted to find joy in our deeds. And it's a temptation because we ought to find our joy ultimately in Christ instead. That though we find joy in the deeds of Christ, we are tempted to find joy in what we do. Although we should meditate on the works of Christ, we are tempted to meditate on what we accomplish For God. We should think highly of the cross. Instead, we think highly of our accomplishments. That though we should find joy in the deeds of Jesus, we are tempted to find joy in what we do for Him. Now, Paul perceived that the Philippians also struggled with this same temptation. Now, if you haven't turned there already, please turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Thank you, Amber, for the excellent scripture reading for this morning. Philippians chapter 3. Now, if you've been with us through our preaching series through the letter of Philippians, that you know that the last two weeks we studied the life of two exemplary believers. We studied the life of Timothy, the model of teamwork, And then also Fred preached the message on Epaphroditus, the model of self-sacrifice. And this brings us then to Philippians chapter 3. And we'll see in these first few verses a warning. That Paul warns the Philippians that they may be tempted to find joy in their works, to find joy in their deeds, rather than the deeds of Christ. And he tells them, watch out for the temptation, beware, be cautious, There will be people who will be coming to you. They will teach you that unless you circumcise yourself, you're a subpar Christian. Unless you observe the festivals, Passover, Tabernacles, Day of Atonement, then you'll never grow in your spiritual life. If you never adopt a diet that abstains from pork, then you'll never find joy in the Lord. And Paul warns the Philippians to look out for these teachers because they may tempt you. To find joy and significance in your deeds. So let's look at what Paul writes in chapter 3, verse 1. He says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, once you read that first half of the verse, you may be thinking, well, this is a short letter. I mean, it's not Philippian or Philemon short, but it's kind of short. That Paul is landing his plane, he is concluding his letter. But then as Paul maybe is writing the word Lord, he thinks to himself, you know, it doesn't seem quite right to end the letter right here. I feel like there's still something more that the Lord wants me to write to the Philippians And then a memory comes to mind. He remembers that he once warned them about these Judaizers, these Jewish Christians, who believed that Christians needed to adopt Jewish practices to become true Christians. And then he thinks, yeah, You know, that's it. I have to remind the Philippians to watch out for these teachers who might tempt them to find joy in their deeds. And so then Paul picks up his stylus and continues to write this. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, Paul uses the phrase look out multiple times in these verses, and he uses this word to look out to remind the Philippians to be on guard against these false teachers. Well, what characterizes these false teachers? Well, In verse 2, he describes them as dogs. Now, dogs may invoke the image of your pet shadow, your black Labrador that comes when you call him. He eats the food that you buy for him. He's nice and groomed. You pet him. But that's not the image that Paul has in mind. What Paul has in mind is a stray dog that eats dead things on the road. And this dog is unclean. And this prompts Jews to use this term, dog, To describe Gentiles. Unclean and filthy beasts. That Gentiles are unclean as well. But Paul turns this term around. He uses it to actually describe the Jewish Christians. He uses it to describe these Jewish Christians. Forcing Christians to observe Jewish laws. That they are unclean. They are filthy beasts. Now there's another term that he uses in verse 2. The word evil doers. Now, these false teachers are attempting to persuade the Philippians to do the righteous thing by observing the dietary laws, the festivals, circumcision, and that they think this is the righteous thing to do. But Paul is saying it's quite the opposite, that by persuading the Christians at Philippi to observe the dietary laws, the festivals, and circumcision, they are asking the Philippians to do an evil thing. This is why Paul calls them evildoers. And then lastly, Paul calls them those who mutilate the flesh. Now, these false teachers believe that Gentile male believers should receive circumcision. But when Gentile Christians receive circumcision, it has no meaning. They just mutilate themselves. It has no benefit. And so the Philippians should really be wary of these individuals, who would want them to obey the law so that they have deeds to be able to justify themselves. And Paul reminds them in verse 3 that they are the circumcision, that those who worship by the Spirit of God and put no confidence in the flesh, they have received circumcision in a spiritual sense. Now notice the two qualifications of those who have received circumcision in verse 3. First, it's this idea that they worship by the Spirit of God. Now, the word worship can be rendered more specifically as the word serve. NIV uses that particular translation. That we serve God by his empowerment through the Holy Spirit because we have received the Holy Spirit through faith. And second, Paul says that the Philippians, these Gentile Christians, are to put no confidence in the flesh. Now by confidence in the flesh, Paul doesn't mean don't trust your body. Because whenever Paul uses the term flesh in his letters and in the New Testament, he refers to the presence of sin in our bodies. That although we are a new creation in Christ, we still retain these bodies that are broken by sin and are affected by it. Uh, Some people, in older translations, refer to it as the sin nature, the old self. And although we may be Christians, those who are empowered by the Spirit of God turn away from the flesh to live according to the Spirit. And so we, because we are in these fleshly bodies, will continue to struggle with that temptation to find joy in the deeds of Christ and in our deeds. Now, some of us may find joy in the things that we do for Christ. We feel a sense of pride when we do things for Jesus. We take pride in the fact that we've read through our Bible in a year. We may feel smug that we've grown a little closer to God because we pray twice a day. And when Sabbath day comes along, we find joy that we've learned to rest while other people struggle. And we may think well of ourselves because we pray for non-believers because everyone else doesn't. And we find joy in the things that we do. It makes us happy. But it puts us in a different, difficult place spiritually, especially when we feel puffed up by our deeds. Now, let's reflect on this more. Why are we tempted to find joy in the things that we do for God? Why do we find satisfaction And the things that we do for Jesus. Why do we feel tempted to look upon our works with self-satisfaction? And it's because of this that our deeds make us appear better than other people. I mean, after all, we're competitive creatures. When we look at other people, we try and think, what makes us better than them? What makes us different than them? And we tend to size up people sometimes spiritually. And we want to see, do we spiritually measure up? And we may be tempted to find joy in our deeds because they make us feel spiritually superior to other people. It makes us appear that we're better. That our deeds make us appear better than other people. Now, when it comes to deeds, Paul is no slouch. He has an impressive spiritual resume. In fact, Paul's deeds made him far better than any Gentile Christian trying to observe the Jewish law. His deeds include accomplishments given by virtue of his birth, and they also include things that he did. So let's look at what Paul talks about in terms of things that he's done. And it begins in verse 4, so let me read this preface for us in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So let's look at the accomplishments that Paul has by virtue of birth. Well, he received circumcision on the eighth day of his life. Right after he was born. These Gentile Christians received circumcision as adults. But Paul has them beat in terms of how long he's been circumcised. And second, Paul is an Israelite. He's part of God's chosen people, genetically. And just in case his listeners think that, well, maybe he's like Rahab or Gibeonite, They were just adopted into the Israelite community. He says, no, 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 no. I am part of the tribe of Benjamin. In fact, my name was Saul, named after the first king of Israel. This makes him a Hebrew of Hebrews, exemplary, just by being born Paul. And that no Gentile Christian could trace their heritage back to Israel, and specifically to a tribe. So Paul has him beat, in terms of genealogy. Now note the things that Paul did. He identifies himself as a Pharisee. He studied the law regularly. He even memorized it. He knew the ins and outs of Torah. His study of the law also created a zeal within him. This zeal is the same zeal that prompted Phinehas in the book of Numbers to drive a spear through an Israelite man sleeping with a Midianite woman. And in his context, this zeal drove Paul to persecute the church. That he wanted to stop out this Jewish cult because he believed that God cursed Jesus by having him hung on a tree. And when it came to following the law, he was righteous. Now, by righteous, Paul doesn't mean he's perfect. But no one can ever accuse him for breaking the law of God. He followed the law of God to the letter. That if he said an angry word, he would have offered the appropriate sacrifice. If he made himself unclean, he would wait the appropriate number of days until he was clean and undergo the purification rites. And his training as a Pharisee, his zeal, his law keeping made him superior to any of these Gentile Philippian Christians. If they compared themselves to Paul, then their accomplishments didn't really amount to much. And we compare ourselves to others too. I mean, we compare our deeds to others to see are we better? Are we greater? I mean, how much better of a believer am I? Oh, you've memorized 12 verses about dealing with anger. Great, I've memorized the book of Jude. You serve with youth ministry for a year, wonderful. I serve with the youth for seven years. Oh, you just started attending this church? Great, we're glad that you're here. I grew up at this church, right? And why do we do this? Why do we compare our deeds with others even here at church? Again, it's because we are competitive. We desire to win. We want to demonstrate to others that we are amazing, superior, excellent breeding. We want others to recognize our accomplishments, and this motivates us to do things sometimes to demonstrate that we are better, we're smarter, we're more spiritual, we're more devoted. Now, what happens when we attempt to accomplish these deeds to make us seem better than other people? There are some dangers. First, this is the first danger I can think of. First, people will then feel insecure about serving at church. I mean, I can't possibly serve on the worship team because others have more music experience than I do. I mean, I never majored in music performance in college. All I did was learn how to strum a few chords in youth group, G, D, C, and A. And I could lead most of the worship songs. You know, I can't teach Sunday school. Some of these Sunday school teachers are in seminary. I would never attend seminary. And these greeters, man, they're veterans. They can name every single person that walks through the doors into our sanctuary. I don't even know anybody because when I came, everybody was wearing masks. And now that they're off, I don't know who they are. Right? And it develops this mentality, I cannot serve unless I have a degree of proficiency in these ministry skills. Now, second, if we keep on doing these things to make us appear better than other people, then you have to realize that there's always going to be someone better. I mean, you memorized Jude. Someone memorized Romans. You served in the youth ministry for seven years. Someone served ten years. You're a 22-year-old that grew up at church? Sorry to break it to you. There are some 30-year-olds who also grew up at this church. Comparing yourselves to others is an exercise in futility. And we just compare. So what do we need to be able to fight this temptation? What principle do we need to have in our mind when we sense this temptation to take pride in that which we accomplish, what do we need to believe? What biblical principle do I need to hold on to at that moment? And that principle is this, that Christ renders our deeds rubbish because a relationship with him is more valuable than anything we will ever do. We have to recognize that a relationship with Christ makes every single accomplishment of ours worthless. That when compared to the value of knowing Christ, no deed could ever come close. Our D's need to be disposed in the rubbish bin when we think about the value of a relationship with our Savior. This is the principle we need. This is the idea that needs to pop in our minds the moment we feel tempted to feel smug about the things that we do for God. Christ renders our deeds rubbish because a relationship with him is more valuable than anything we might do. And Paul realized this. He understood this reality. He considered his deeds as a loss when he thinks about the worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Let's look at what he writes in verse 7 verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now note that the word loss occurs twice in these verses. The first time it, it occurs, it's, he considers any gain As a loss. Circumcised on the eighth day. Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. None of it matters. It's not worth it to boast in these things. And the second time. He talks about loss. He counts everything as loss. Every accomplishment that he did not mention. Has the same value. Nothing. His status as a Roman citizen. His training under the great teacher. Gamaliel he stamped on each of these accomplishments, loss. And loss, he thinks, is too light of a word that he uses the word rubbish. Now, rubbish is rather polite. We take out rubbish. But Paul uses a word with a little bit more zing, a little bit more pizzazz. It's a vulgar word used to describe dung. He says that compared to knowing Christ, his accomplishments and everything that he's done is like manure, like dung, like feces. They're not worth it. And Paul uses the word no to describe his relationship with Christ. Now, the word no doesn't really mean knowledge of facts. Jesus born in Nazareth. Jesus received baptism in the Jordan. The name of Jesus' mother is Mary. The word no here actually denotes a relational understanding that there is an intimacy and devotion to Christ. To how Paul describes Jesus as Christ Jesus, my Lord. That even that possessive pronoun, my, denotes intimacy. And that Paul's experience on the road to Damascus changed him from becoming a persecutor of the church to a servant of Jesus Christ. To know Christ means to know his heart for us, and also for other people. And for us, we need to know, we need to recognize that knowing Christ exceeds the value of any deed. Well, why? Because whatever you have done, Christ has done better. We memorize the scriptures. He inspired them. We served the youth. He created them. We grew up at the church. His death served as a foundation for the church. Christ was with God when he created everything on this earth, yet Jesus did not think much of his accomplishments. Instead, as we learn in Philippians, and we repeat time and time again, that he set those things aside so that he could be born a human being, taking the form of a servant. He walked among men. People could see him, touch him, hear his voice, feel his breath. They could see him love people. And he came to this earth to accomplish one great deed, to give his life to save rebels like us. So that we may not just know him in terms of things about him, but that we may know him intimately. Because when he rose from the dead, he gave us his spirit so that he would never depart from us. Nothing we ever do or have done will ever come close to what Christ has accomplished. So then what should we do? I mean, we know this principle. We know this idea. Christ renders our deeds rubbish because a relationship with him is more valuable. But then what is the application? What is our response? Well, we need to find joy in what Christ's deed accomplished for us. That we have to rejoice in what Christ has done. We should receive peace, satisfaction, knowing what Christ has accomplished on the cross. That the work of Christ gives us hope. It should cease our comparing. It should cease our striving. That we find joy ultimately in what he has done. We find joy in what Christ's deed accomplished for us. Now in this next section of Philippians, Paul describes what Christ's deed has done. And there are two things. So first, Christ's deed on the cross achieved a righteousness for us. It made us whole again. Look with me at verse 9. Verse 9, it says this. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now note the contrast between the righteousness that was mentioned before in verse 6 That was based on the law. But now there's a righteousness here in verse 9 that is different. It is based upon faith. And it comes ultimately from God. It doesn't come from doing things. It comes from believing. And he says it twice. That which through faith in Christ, and the phrase depends on faith. That there is no deed that contributes to our righteousness in God. It doesn't matter how many books by Tim Keller or John Piper that you've read. It doesn't matter how long you served at church. It doesn't matter how much of the Bible you've committed to your memory. None of those deeds contribute to your righteousness because our righteousness in God comes only through faith. And when you placed your faith in Christ, you received a righteousness that needs no contribution. Now think about it, like how amazing that is. This means we don't have to compare ourselves to others. This righteousness of a new believer is the same as that of a mature saint. And this should free us to be able to serve not to be better, but with a focus on God. That we don't serve based on what people think of us, but we serve because God loves us. So Christ's deed accomplished righteousness for us. Now, there's a second thing that Christ's deed on the cross accomplished for us, that Christ's deed empowered us to grow spiritually, that Christ's work on the cross resulted in us receiving power to live out our spiritual lives, that he resources us with what we need to live a life that ultimately is pleasing to him. Let's look at verse 10, what he writes there. He writes, "...that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Well, what did Christ's resurrection do? Well, it resulted in the Holy Spirit dwelling within believers. That the Spirit of God that used to come and go among Old Testament saints now resides in Christians. That he empowers the believer to say no to the flesh and yes to the Spirit. No to sin and yes to following the Spirit's guidance. And that as believers, we need to rely on the Holy Spirit to grow spiritually. Now, if it's the Holy Spirit that empowers us for the things that we do, then can we truly take credit for the things that we think we do? I mean, the Spirit empowers us to know the Bible better, so can we take credit for that? If the Spirit empowers us to lead people to sing songs of worship, do we take credit for our musical ability If the Spirit of God empowers us to shepherd other people, then do we take credit for how many people we've mentored? No. It's all from God. It's through his empowerment. He deserves all the credit, and this is all God's grace. And when we grow spiritually, we also suffer. I mean, Paul makes it clear through this statement, share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Now, unlike Christ's suffering that accomplished redemption— Our suffering puts Christ on display. That preaching Christ in the gospel may lead to the loss of friendships. Taking biblical positions on things such as marriage and gender may make you unpopular in the workplace or school. But ultimately, Christians don't put their hope in the opinions of others. We put our hope in what Christ has accomplished on the cross. For to know him far exceeds anything that we can ever experience in this world. And this enables us to grow spiritually because suffering requires us to depend on Christ more rather than less. Now, since Christ's deeds accomplish and achieve for us a righteousness and also empowerment to grow spiritually, we need to find joy in what Christ has done. We should rejoice in the Lord. But what happens when we find joy in Christ's deeds? What is the result? How does it change us? What can we expect to happen if we truly have a hope in Christ that fuels our joy? If we find joy ultimately in what Christ has done, we anticipate Christ's future deed. We look forward to when Christ will make our bodies like his. It creates within us an expectation that we look forward to the day when we shed the flesh so that we become more like him. We await the day when sin will no longer be a struggle, and instead everything we do will be dedicated to Christ. That we anticipate Christ's future deed of making us more like him, making our bodies like his. And we see that Paul has the same anticipation, that Paul anticipated his future resurrection in Christ. And he writes about it in verse 11. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And what Paul means here is that whether I die or Christ returns, I look forward to the resurrection. And he looks forward to being risen from the dead with the other saints in the presence of God. And I think we should also anticipate that future resurrection as well. Because in that day... All the things that we do, we're able to do perfectly. You know, it doesn't matter how much Bible you memorize now because your memory will degrade. But then when you receive your resurrected body, your memory will be perfect. Now, it doesn't matter how well you play a musical instrument now, but when you receive your resurrected body, you will be able to play music perfectly. You can tell different tones, whether you're in right pitch, You may have a hard time providing spiritual care for students right now, but at the day of resurrection, every single pain and sorrow will be done away with, and you will no longer need to care for their sadness. And we strive and we work and we anticipate that day when we will rise from the dead, where we receive resurrected bodies like Christ. Now let me close with this illustration. This is a reflection from Bono, the lead singer of U2. He says this, Your nature is a hard thing to change. It takes time. I've heard of people who have life-changing, miraculous turnarounds, people set free from addiction after a song, relationships saved where both parties say, let go and let God. But it was not like that for me. For all that I was lost, I am found, is probably more accurate to say I was really lost. I'm a little less so at the moment and then a little less, and a little less again. That to me is a spiritual life, the slow reworking and rebooting the computer at regular intervals, reading the small print of the service manual. It has slowly rebuilt me in a better image. It has taken years, though, and it is not over yet. And he's right, that it's a slow and gradual work to fight against the temptation to find joy in the things that we do. But this struggle will not last forever because one day we will find our joy solely in Christ, either in our death when we go to be with him, or when Christ returns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to find greater joy in what he has done for us rather than the things that we do for you. Help us to remember this truth and that your spirit would help us to anticipate the day when we will be in your presence to worship you freely and that our deeds will be things that we will no longer think about, but we will only reflect and sing praises to you for the things that you have done. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.